welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Lewis County, Washington. During each episode, you will discover the sermons, exhortations, discussions, and interviews from our various weekly gatherings. Christ Covenant Church is a historically reformed and evangelical church that has been serving the greater Centralia Chehalis area since May of 2021. We meet for worship each Lord's Day to sing psalms and hymns, confess our historic faith, hear the word faithfully proclaimed, and celebrate together the Lord's Supper. Throughout the week, we go out into the world to build the kingdom of Christ right here in Lewis County. If this sounds like a vision for you, we would love to have you join us. Head on over to lewiscounty.church, that is lewiscounty.church, where you will find a calendar of events as well as current times and locations for worship. Please enjoy the following audio. But on a day-to-day basis, mostly we are walking, 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 walking. Paul says that we are to walk circumspectly. Uh, This uh, English word, uh, if we were translating the Greek, maybe a more um, uh, helpful uh, translation might be something like accurately or exactly or diligently or with care. Uh, Some translations here use carefully, which I think is not a bad translation, but I do think it ends up being a little misleading. Um, And we'll get into why in a moment. But I think a a more helpful translation would be something like accurately or diligently. Walk accurately. Walk diligently. Fools stumble about in the dark when they do not know where they are going. Fools stumble about in the dark. But we have been given light. Paul says this just early in the the, uh, verses just leading up to where we are right now. That you are children of light. And so walk in the light. We've been given this kind of light, and if we've been given this light, then we should walk according to what we can see. Remember that the first half of Ephesians is all about what we should believe, what we should know, the things that we should see about God. And particularly an emphasis throughout chapters 1, 2, and 3 of the grace of God. Paul wants his readers to know the grace of God. In fact, he prays this for them uh, several times. He prays that they would have not just Not just that they would experience the grace of God, but that they would have knowledge of it. That they would know. We we looked at when we were preaching, or when I was preaching through chapter 1, we spent a little bit of time looking at how many different terms related to knowledge that Paul uses in that short prayer. That he wants them to know that their eyes would be enlightened, that they would see the grace and power of God who has brought them from death to life. If we have been given this kind of knowledge of God's grace toward us, then we should walk examining everything in light of that truth. And I think that's part of what Paul is talking about here when he says walk accurately, walk diligently, walk circumspectly, seeing everything in light of this truth that God has given to us. And this means that every moment, every season, every situation is an opportunity from God to live in light of that truth, to live according to this gift of his grace. 
It's an opportunity to live out this grace that he has given to us and to work out our salvation. Paul says in Philippians that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And like good reformed Calvinists, you all think, no, or Protestants, no, we don't work. We're saved by grace alone. Yeah, but Paul says you also need to work out your salvation. But this is not at all divorced from God working in you because Paul goes on to say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. And this is what Paul is telling us, telling us to do here in Ephesians as well. Walk circumspectly, seeing everything in light of the truth of the grace that God has given to us. We're to walk not as fools, but as wise. Wisely seeing this salvation. Wisely seeing our, this grace that's been given to us and applying it to everything. And because of this, then, Paul tells Christians to redeem the time because the days are evil. Okay, this is where I think if we use a translation, I think the NIV translates it this way, but if you say, walk carefully, redeeming the time because the days are evil, I think that gives us the impression that we're to walk around really, really carefully, that I don't misstep, and I don't step out of line, and I don't, I don't mess up because, because I'm a follower of Jesus. I don't think that's the attitude that Christians should have. And I don't think that's the attitude that Paul is exhorting us to have at all. Paul is writing to Christians who are likely familiar with persecution. Or or who see persecution coming in in the days ahead of them. But we know that evil of any time is not a reason for Christians to fear. Turn with me real quick to Psalm 49. This was a, a, a verse that I, I came upon as I was studying, prepping for a preaching this week, and a, a verse that has never stood out to me before. And uh, connecting it with this passage, it just it was uh, so wonderful. And this is a verse that you should memorize. Chapter 49, uh, sorry, Psalm 49, verse 5. Why should I fear in the days of evil when the iniquity at my heels surrounds me? I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. Why should I fear the evil that's all around me? Um, lots of application for this in our, in our day as we see the antithesis and the divide in our culture more and more. As there's more and more um, uh, opposition to uh, the faith, of opposition to believers who are placing their trust in Christ. But even I think um, there's, there's great application for this personally in your own fight against evil, in your own fight against sin. Why should you be afraid of your sin? Don't you belong to Jesus? Hasn't he died for you? Hasn't he saved you? Why then are you afraid of your sin? You look your sin in the eye, and I think it was Luther is famous for these sorts of phrases, but you look your sin in the eye and you tell it to go to hell. You look your sin in the eye and you're not afraid of it. Why? Because you've been bought with the blood of Jesus. Your sin no longer has any dominion over you. Whatever that sin is that you can't shake, that thing that you've always fallen into, that attitude that you can't get out of, you look it in the eye and you say, no, I'm not afraid of you. I belong to Jesus. Why should I fear in the days of evil? So, so Paul says then in Ephesians 5, we are to redeem the time because the days are evil. 
But what Paul's not talking about is really anxiously take advantage of every moment and, and really walk very carefully because the days are evil. That seems completely in contradiction with what the psalmist is saying in Psalm, 40, in Psalm 49. No, why should you fear? Paul's not talking about walking circumspectly because you're afraid. Walking carefully because you're afraid. This is not what he has in view at all. Paul is writing uh, to remind Christians to make the most of the season even when the days are dark. To make the most of the season. What does this mean? Uh, merchants, the, the term here to redeem the time is, uh, was, a, was a term that was used very familiarly among the merchant class. So it just, it, another way to translate this would be to buy back the opportunity. Okay? Uh, it was a transactional term. Merchants look for every opportunity to make a profit. Right? You probably all have a friend or a buddy of some kind who's just always looking to make a deal, always looking to turn a profit. Um, they're always looking to make a sale. Uh, they're, they just, they're wired this way. Right? And this is what Paul has in view. Uh, merchants look for every opportunity to make a profit. Christians, as long as there is evil, as long as the days are evil, Christians should look at every opportunity to further the advance of the good news of Christ's kingdom. You're like a merchant that's always looking to, get, to, to make a sale, to turn a profit, to trade. Right? Christians are looking, as long as there's evil in the world, is there evil in the world today? Right? Is, is there evil in your own hearts today? Then, then you're looking for every opportunity to stamp out the evil. You're looking for every opportunity to trade, to, to, to grab that evil, to turn it over to Jesus, and advance the kingdom one more step. I think this is what Paul has in view when he says... Uh, Walk circumspectly, walk diligently, walk accurately, redeeming the time. This is a call to a martial walk, an advancing of the kingdom day by day as we go through the works that God has set before us to walk in. We do this in our, uh, all around us. Um, we do this by building schools, building churches, building communities. We do this in our own families, taking every opportunity to teach your children and bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We do this in our relationships, husband and wife, taking every opportunity to demonstrate the love of Christ for his church to your wife, to demonstrate the submission of the church to Christ to your husband. We take every opportunity to do these things. We do this with our children, uh, taking every opportunity to discipline them, to turn them more and more to Christ. Brothers and uh, children, with your brothers and sisters, you're taking every opportunity to demonstrate the love of Jesus that he has given you for your siblings. Taking advantage of every moment to walk in the grace that God has given to you. And again, this is not because we're trying to, to walk so carefully so that we don't mess up. And it's not because we're walking in such a way to, to build up a good catalog of the works that God has given us to do. No, it's, it's because we're imitating God. What has God done? He's been gracious to you. He's forgiven all of your sins. He's held nothing against you. It's put, he's put it all on Christ on the cross. And if that's true, then you've been filled with grace. And so you walk about like a, like a cup that's full of grace. And as you walk, it just kind of sloshes and spills out of you everywhere you go. You are spilling out the grace that God has given to you. This is how we walk circumspectly, redeeming the time. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. If this then is how Christians should live, then, then we should look at this next verse, or this next phrase. Paul says, redeeming the time because the days are evil, therefore, so because of this, 
Do not be unwise. Okay, don't, don't be fools. It's always good exhortation from the scriptures. Don't be a fool. But rather understand what the will of the Lord is. Again, we have this, this uh, knowledge term, this understanding that Paul is exhorting the Ephesians to have. You're supposed to do a lot of things. You're supposed to walk in the works that God has called you to walk in, but you're supposed to do so with a particular understanding. What is this understanding? We're to understand what the will of the Lord is. And again, I think our temptation is when we, when we come to a verse like this is to immediately think, what is God's will for my life? What is God's will for me right now? I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. We, we tend to think that the will of God is some great mystery that we need to um, um, un- unveil and unpack that needs to be revealed in our life. But that's not what Paul says. Look back at chapter 1 of Ephesians. Look at chapter 1, verse... Uh, we'll start in verse 7. In Him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Himself. And so Paul says actually that the will of God has already been made known. It's not a mystery. What was this mystery? Having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him, in Christ. What is the will of God? The will of God is that all things are, will be, have begun to be, and, and are being brought together in Christ. That's God's will. I'm not making it up. Paul said it. Right? So we come to this verse and we read, um, understand what the will of God is. The first thing we should not think is, what is God's will for my life? The first thing we should think is, hey, Paul talked about that at the beginning of Ephesians. He talked about the will of God that is revealed Let's go look at that. The will of God that has been revealed is that um, God is bringing all things, to get, he's working all things together for good for those who love him, Romans 8, 28. God is working all things for the good of those who love him. And that he is bringing all things together under the lordship of Jesus until the last enemy is destroyed. One other passage I want to look at related to this is 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15, Paul says, I'll start in verse 23. So he's, uh, Paul here is talking about the resurrection. He's talking about how um, Christ, Christ has been raised from the dead. And, and if he's not been raised to dead, then, then we are the most foolish of people believing in this whole Jesus thing. Okay? But if Jesus has been raised from the dead, then it is life to us. So starting in verse 23, he's, he's talking about how, um, uh, how Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, how what will come after that. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. 
It's all Jesus at that point. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. How long is Jesus going to reign? Until he's king over everything. Until all the enemies have been put down. Until they're all submitted under Christ's feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him, to to the Father, who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. This is God's will. This is God's will for the world. That all things would be brought under the Lordship of Jesus. And this is God's will for you then, that you believe that all things, that he is working all things to bring, under the, to bring everything under the Lordship of Jesus. And therefore, it's for your good. If you love him and if you are following him. What is God's will for your life? <laughs> that you know this. Do you understand this? Do you understand the Lordship of Jesus and how that changes everything? Uh, interestingly, I think this helps us to make more sense of other passages where uh, Paul talks about our, God's will for us. Let me read for you um, from 1 Thessalonians 5. First Thessalonians 5, <clears throat> 16 through 18, Paul gives three commands here. He says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Again, another place Paul talks about God's will for you. And this time he's talking about God's will for you. He's not just talking about this cosmic will that God has or God's will for the world, but God's will for you. But interestingly, again, it's not, what is God's will for my life? It's not as though we can, I think, study the scriptures and see God's plan for us, what job we should take, where we, where we should move to, how many kids we should have. We're not going to understand that um, in terms of having an exact answer, usually, from coming to the scripture and seeing what, does God, what is God's will. He's not going to usually speak to us in that way. But we can come to the scripture and see, okay, I have these questions. What is God's will for me with these questions? Paul says, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing and in everything give thanks. Well, why do Christians do that? Christians do that because we understand that God is working everything together for our good. That he is bringing everything under the lordship of Jesus. So we walk circumspectly, practicing these things, rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, and everything giving thanks, understanding what the will of the Lord is. And so Paul tells Christians to walk diligently, understanding this hope. This this is actually a great hope for Christians. That the things that God has going on in your life are not meaningless. The things that God has going on in the world are not meaningless and they're not scary to God. And, and, and your situations, the sicknesses, the financial troubles, the sorrows are all in his control, in his hand. And we look at those things with eyes of faith, understanding the sorrow, understanding the pain, understanding the, the worries and the anxieties, and we give it over to him. And say, God, I'm going to rejoice always with what you have given me. And I'm going to pray without ceasing. And I'm going to give thanks in everything. Because I know your will. And I know your will for me. This is the hope that Paul calls Christians to walk in. And so we are not so much to walk carefully lest we misstep. Again, I want to come back to that. 
When Paul says, walk circumspectly, I don't think he means be, be really, really wary of where you're stepping. I think what he means is walk in such a way that you are taking every opportunity to push back the darkness and advance the kingdom. Beginning first in your own heart. Beginning first with confessing your own sin and turning that over to Christ. And then doing the same with the world around you. Paul builds on this next by then uh, maybe there there may seem to be an odd uh, disjunction in this passage. Paul's talking about the will of God, redeeming the time, and then he comes to do not be drunk with wine. How does that follow? Paul contrasts the folly of um, being drunk with wine, or he will contrast it with being filled by the Spirit. There's a connection there between the drunkard who is unable to redeem the time because his, uh, because his life is dissolute, because he's full of, um, because he can't, he's lazy and he is unable to think clearly. He's unable to make careful decisions. But there's a lot, actually a lot of ways that this is really a fitting um, sin that Paul uses, I think, as an example for much more. Whether the temptation be because of despair at the evil days, or because of the pressure to fit in with the surrounding pagans, we should hear again Paul's warning from verse 6, earlier in chapter 5, not to be deceived. Okay? Do not be drunk with wine, Paul says. Um, uh, drunkenness is obviously a, um, a huge problem in our day. It was a huge problem in Paul's day. Uh, in Ephesus, there were, uh, there were massive uh, pagan temples, and the, the drunkenness of the Greeks was just rampant. Okay? Something that they would have been very familiar with. And so the temptation might be, for Christians, because of the evil days, right? Persecution coming might be tempting to go and forget it in your drink. Or it might be to fit in with the surrounding pagans again. But regardless, um, Paul is exhorting Christians not to be deceived. You are going to be influenced by something. You are going to be under the influence of something. This is... um, uh, what's what kind of thing that's been called an inescapable concept, right? It's not whether you're going to be under the influence of something, but what you are going to be under the influence of, okay? An inescapable concept. Paul contrasts being under the influence of wine with being under the influence of the Spirit. We are going to be led by something, and ultimately it comes down to two things. Ultimately, we are going to be led or influenced by our own sinful lusts, on the one hand, or on the other, our godly desires as the Spirit works in us. We're either going to be led by our flesh or led by the Spirit. Paul, again, gets to this kind of thing in Galatians chapter 5, where he lists out the works of the flesh and compares it with the works of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. We're either going to be led by our own sinful lusts or godly desires as the Spirit works in us. And so drunkenness is a sin because it means letting, letting something control you other than the Spirit. That's why drunkenness is called out as a sin and something to be repented of, um, as the kind of behavior that Paul says in other places, um, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Drunkenness is, is out because it's submitting yourself to another master, a master other than Christ. And we should pause here because there are always, uh, um, there are always those that like to... Um, Try to find the, the to thread the needle here. Um, when Paul says, "Do not be drunk with wine," that doesn't mean it's okay to be drunk with beer. Okay? 
It also doesn't mean it's okay to be drunk with marijuana. Right? The, the point here Paul, that Paul is making is not the wine. The point here is the drunkenness. The giving yourself over uh, to another master. Being under the influence, being enslaved by some other thing than the Spirit. Okay, so you can apply this to lots of different things, but particularly it's important to note that Paul's not just excluding wine. He's excluding anything that causes a state of drunkenness. Okay? Uh, drunkenness also is particularly fitting here because it rarely comes alone. Drunkenness rarely comes alone as a sin, but it is accompanied by laziness or wrath or brawling or fornication, and it leads to licentious and profligate living. Licentious meaning sort of without bounds, without the constraints of godly uh, laws and rules. And so then in a society uh, where drunkenness is normal, it might, again, it might seem appropriate, uh, drunkenness might seem an appropriate response given the evil days. Okay? Um, Paul says again in 1 Corinthians 15, which we were just looking at, that if if Christ has not been raised again, and there's not a, a hope that we have in the resurrection, then our attitude ought to be, well, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It would be very fitting when days are evil to, if we don't believe in the resurrection, if we don't believe in this hope, to give ourselves over to drunkenness. That would be a, fitting, a seemingly fitting response. And so I think because of this, actually, drunkenness is a good metaphor just for all sin. Right? When the days are evil, when the days are evil out in the world, or when the days are evil in your heart, when the, when the temptation is strong, the tempt, it is so easy to give into it and say, oh, just this once. Or I can't, I can't stop myself this time. Or um, to just give up in other ways. To not resist, not fight that temptation, not push back against it with the other things that God has called us to walk in. Rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, and everything giving thanks. It's easy to live as a slave to any kind of sin, like it's easy for a drunkard to be a slave to his alcohol. I think it's just it's a wonderful picture. Drunkenness is a wonderful picture of just all sin. When we, when we give into it, it becomes our master. But we need to remember that Christ has died for us. And if that's true, then it's not our master. This is why this grace of being raised from death to life is so important. And Paul wants the believers to walk in this understanding. Walk in this will of God. That he is working all things for you. All things for good. Living as a slave to any sin is like being a drunkard. Unable to redeem the time. Wandering about as a fool. And interestingly, Paul actually will use this, uh, this term of drunkenness in other passages, comparing it to um, the way that a Christian ought to live, because the day has come, the day has come in our hearts, um, uh, and, and so we are to walk in the light, not like the drunkard who's in despair and in the darkness and forgetting that it's actually daytime. Right? The drunkard doesn't get up when his alarm goes off, okay? because he's not aware of the daytime. But Paul says, no, the day has come. Christ has risen in your hearts. Christ has, raised, uh, has been raised to new life and is reigning. And so it's daytime. So we walk as, as though that's true. Paul contrasts this folly of being drunk with wine with being filled by the Spirit then in verse 18. Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. 
Um, this is a, another interesting uh, phrase that I think we uh, tend to understand wrong a lot of times. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? The Holy Spirit is not some sort of substance that God pours into us. It's not a substance. It's not like we're a bunch of um, Christian trucks and we're running low on the Spirit. Okay? It's not something that we need to go get a tune-up on or get filled up on. And it's easy to, I think, make that, uh, to make that assumption because Paul's comparing this with being drunk with wine. Okay? So it's easy to think, oh, the, so the drunkard is filled up with wine, and so similarly, I need to not be filled up with wine, but I need to be filled up with the Spirit. I, I don't think that's what Paul is comparing. Again, he's comparing what's, what are you under the influence of? Are you under the influence of wine as your master? Or are you under the influence of the Spirit as your master? And so I think maybe a, a, another, this is a, an actual um, alternate translation or, or a different way to translate this particular phrase is to be filled by the Spirit. Not with the Spirit, but by the Spirit. There's other places in um, Scripture that use the same construction to talk about the, the way that something is done, the means by which something is done. So read it, I think we should read it this way. Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled by the Spirit. Well, if we're being filled by the Spirit, then the, the next question is, well, what is the Spirit filling us with? Well, let's keep reading. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Uh, there's a parallel passage to this in Colossians chapter 3. Turn a couple pages over. Colossians chapter 3. Verse 16, Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. It's very, very similar to what he's saying here in Ephesians chapter 5. Be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. What is it that the Spirit fills us with? I think um, looking at these passages together, it helps us to understand that the Spirit fills us with the Word of God, such that psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs are the things that spill out of us. We begin to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs because the Spirit is working in us. The Spirit is the one that makes the Word of God effectual in the hearts of His people. So as you go and you read God's Word, you can, you can take God's word and take it in, but it's the spirit that then does the work of the word in your heart and actually establishes it there and hides it in your heart. And so this is, this, again, this is part of the way in which we walk circumspectly redeeming the time. Paul says to sing or to, to utter psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to the Lord among ourselves. We're to sing and make melody also in our heart to the Lord. We learn to give thanks always for all things in Jesus' name. Verse 20. Again, that's one of, those pass, or one of those verses that you look at and you say, giving thanks always for all things. Paul, do you really mean that? Do you really mean that? It's got to be hyperbole. Well, but if we understand that God is working all things together for good for those who love him, and we understand that he is doing that because he's bringing all things under the lordship of Jesus, then there really is a sense in which we can, thank, we can give thanks always in all things. That doesn't mean that we are um, sort of thanking God flippantly, right? So um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a car crash out on the highway. 
And you can tell as you're driving by that it's a fatality. It doesn't mean that we thank God that somebody died in that instant. That's not exactly what we mean. But we can say, God, thank you that you are in control of that situation. And you determined that it was time for them to die. And you determined that was what their family needed because it's good for those who love you. And I don't understand how it works. But I can give you thanks for all things at all times. So this is not a sort of glib thankfulness, but a thankfulness that's rooted again in what has God done in you and what is God doing in the world. What do we see from Scripture that he is doing? This also means that we, uh, verse 21 then, we submit to and give preference to one another in the fear of God. This is another way in which we walk circumspectly, redeeming the time. Submitting to one another. uh, Giving preference to the other. um, Thinking of others as more highly than yourself. Interestingly, I think um, uh, this is based, uh, um, the way that Paul puts this, we submit to one another in the fear of God. Other versions will say in the fear of Christ. I think here we have an example of the, the first and second greatest commandment. The first commandment Jesus says is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In other words, to fear God. Right? And we are, the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So we just submit to one another, giving preference to one another, thinking of others as better than ourselves. In other words, loving your neighbor as yourself. And we're to do that how? In the fear of God. Underneath this love for God. These are the things that Paul tells us to walk in then. We're to walk circumspectly, being filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God, and submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. Paul urges that we speak to one another from the Psalter. Uh, This is another uh, fascinating thing in this this passage. We're to speak to one another, Paul says, in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Um, One way to understand what Paul's talking about here is to say the psalms, which is the Psalter, speak to one another in the Psalter, the hymns, which would maybe be other scriptural uh, hymns or hymns of the church, uh, that are something like the Song of Simeon in, in the Gospel of Luke. Okay? So these hymns, these songs that are in Scripture but are not actually in the Psalter, um, but they would be considered hymns or other hymns that are in the history of the church. Um, and then uh, spiritual songs would have, has sometimes been taken to be kind of your more modern uh, praise music um, and, and worship songs. Um, I think that's an okay application, but, I, but again, I don't think that's probably primarily what Paul has in mind. Um, In Paul's day, these three terms, psalms, hymns, and songs, were actually used as titles for different psalms in the Greek of the Psalter. So in the book of Psalms, as you go through, there are different uh, psalms that have titles. And some of those titles are psalms, hymns, or spiritual songs, or songs. And so I think one of the things that Paul's saying here is, um, speak to one another with God's word. Speak to one another from the Psalms. He gave us 150 of them, and so we can start with that. Um, some will take this passage then also as an argument for um, what's called exclusive psalmody, which uh, says that you should only sing psalms in church. You shouldn't sing other uh, non-scriptural, uh, non-scriptural hymns, um, which I don't think Paul is making the point of here. But I think he is saying, I think this is what we can derive from this is that this is the foundation of our worship. The foundation of the way in which we speak to one another ought to be the Psalms. 
We do this corporately and individually. We do this inwardly and we do this outwardly. We're to speak to one another and we're to sing and make melody in our hearts. So we do it together as the church. We do it outwardly and we also do it inwardly and individually. When Christ's word dwells in us by the spirit in this way, then it changes us. Hebrews 4 tells us that the word of God is like a two-edged sword that cuts to the heart. It divides between soul and spirit. It opens you up before the Lord so he can rearrange you and fix you and set you right. So we want Christ's word to dwell in us richly by the spirit so that it will change us. But the word is also, Paul will later say in Ephesians 6, it's the sword of the spirit that we wield against the world, the flesh, and the devil. You're probably familiar with the argument that Paul makes at the end of Ephesians to put on the whole armor of God. And he goes through this list of the the different pieces of the armor. There's only one sword mentioned. There's no spear. There's no dagger. There's just one offensive weapon. And Paul says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so we take up the sword of the Spirit, how? In part by speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We're to wield the sword. We're to let God wield the sword in us, in our hearts, and then we are to wield the sword ourselves. <clears throat> and I think this is, um, again, wh- where Paul is comparing this with drunkenness, I think is just so appropriate, so helpful, right? What does a drunkard want? A drunkard wants just one more drink, right? Just one more. But a Christian, and, and, and why does a drunkard want just one more drink? Usually because it's, he's in despair of some sort. And there's a craving that he won't resist. But there's this despair that surrounds it all. Can't stop, won't stop. But a Christian, though he will walk through dark valleys, though there will be moments of despair, moments where we cry out to God in the darkness, the Christian does not give in to that despair. The drunkard wants just one more drink. The Christian wants just one more psalm. Turn back to the psalms. Once more. One more psalm. And so, be filled by the Spirit. This is what Paul is calling the Ephesians to. Again, this is the last, the last time that Paul says, walk, in Ephesians. And he gives this exhortation to walk according to the knowledge that God has given to you. Be filled by the Spirit, singing the psalms and thankfully pursuing every work, every moment that the Lord sets before you. Because this is how Christians should walk. God has set works before you to walk in because he's given you new life. And he's filled you with grace for all of those moments. He's given you everything that you need in order to follow him in those moments. You have been made alive by grace alone. You have been united united together as the church in Christ. You have been taught to put off the old man and to put on the new man. You have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, which is the promise of your inheritance. And your King Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, ruling over heaven and earth. And so, Paul says, walk circumspectly. Walk diligently. Walk accurately. Redeeming the time by pushing grace, uh, by, by pushing the grace that God has given you, uh, by pushing the evil through the grace that God has given you in your hearts, out into the world around you. Pressing forth the kingdom. Further up, further in, further out beginning in your own hearts. We do this because the days are evil. This was true in Paul's day, and it's still true in our day. But remember that Paul was writing this to the Ephesians. He wasn't writing it to you in the sense that Paul knew that your days were going to be evil in a different way 
than it was for the Ephesians. But he is writing it because it's a truth that's true for all time. The days are evil. As long as, long as um, there are sinners, as long as there is sin in the world, as long until Jesus comes again, the days are evil. But we, do, we walk this way because the days are evil and Christians have been given grace for that evil. This is no surprise. You've been given grace for days just like this. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to open it and to study it. God, would you help us to understand these things, to understand what your will is, and understanding what your will is then to walk in it. Father, I do pray for this church. We thank you for the opportunity to worship with them over this last year and a half. And Father, we th- I pray that you would grant to them, according to the riches of your glory, that they would be strengthened with might through your Holy Spirit, that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith, and that they would be rooted and grounded in love and would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, that they would know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. And Father, we ask you this because we know that you can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us by your Spirit. And so we give you praise for it all. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.